We're going to return to chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Uh, This is a most important portion of the letter following the first four verses. This is the first of the arguments touched on in the exordium, or those first four verses, that he is now hammering out in some detail. He does this throughout the letter. We want to see the way he does this, and I urge you to think about it. They did not write in those days using the same kinds of arguments and the same kinds of expressions that we do. It's hard for us to think of how different languages really are. When the Lord confused the languages at the Tower of Babel, it is quite remarkable. All you have to do is uh, go to a, a, a country where you don't know the language, uh, preach with an interpreter, and realize how different those things are. <clears throat> Sometimes I would preach a long sentence and he would say it in a couple of words. <clears throat> then I would preach a short sentence and it would sound like it took him a paragraph to get it done because he was trying to think of how to express that in his language with his idioms with the the grammar and the way they understood so i do pray that as we read these things we try to put our hearts and souls in a frame that will let us pick up a little bit of something from two thousand years ago If you would stand with me one more time, we're going to read verses 5 through 14. Brethren, we have the privilege of hearing the word of God. Verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above Thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hath laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, 
but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's remain standing. By the grace and spirit of God, may our hearts be united as one before the throne of grace. Father, thou art the great God of wonders. Thou art the great creator of the universe. Thou art the great redeemer of thy people. We praise Thee. Help us to understand even many of the words that we use repeatedly. Help us not simply to say those words, which is easy to do. But Father, may we wholeheartedly praise Thee. May we wholeheartedly magnify Thee. May we wholeheartedly extol thee, exalt thee, thank thee, O oh God. I know that in my life, about the only thing I was ever to do wholeheartedly was to sin. How I praise thee that thou didst have mercy. Father, I pray that with the wholeheartedness that I pursued the darkness, I pray that thou wilt give me stronger legs to run after the light. Father, I pray for thy people. Preserve us, preserve us from same old, same old religion. Father, help us by the power of thy spirit to come with fresh spirits. And when we come and we are low, may thy spirit come and lift our souls. Father, we need a touch from thee, and I thank thee that thou dost this. I thank thee that thou liftest us out of the dunghill, that thou puttest upon the rock. How we thank thee that thou hast taken us out of the miry clay, put us in a, a broad place, a wide place, a free place. Thank you for taking us out of the slavery of our sin. Thank you. And we praise thee for giving us liberty of heart. Now help us, Father. Our flesh fights us just about every step. Lord, we say with Paul, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Father, help us by the mighty power of thy spirit to be a people that 
mortifies their sins. Father, may we ever be at it. The enemy takes no vacation. Help us not to grow weary in the warfare. Help us not to put down our guards. Help us not to be tricked by the subtleties of the world and of the flesh and of the devil. Now, Father, these are thy dearly loved people. Thou hast ever loved them. Thou wilt always love them. And I pray that they would know thy love today, that thou wouldst meet with them where they are, where they need. Very often, Father, I know in my own case, I come thinking I need one thing. Then thou showest me I need another. And I thank thee for that as well. Father, may we ever magnify thy name as those transformed and brought into thy kingdom, into thy family, into thy congregation. These are my brothers and sisters. And Father, I ask thee to bless them. Pour out thy rich blessings upon them today. Now, thou knowest us. Thou knowest what we need. Please help me in speaking thine infallible word with my fallible lips. And I ask, O God, that we truly would know the moving of thy spirit. Thou hast said it, Jesus. If we ask anything in thy name, thou wilt do it. Thou didst pour out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We know that Thou dost do it. Please, fill us, fill these vessels to Thy great glory and to the good of one another. We pray it in Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In various ways and at different times, God revealed himself and his will by speaking through his servants, the prophets. From Adam to Abraham to Moses and to David, God's purpose for his people, a land and a kingdom unfolded. But no great deliverer appeared. No serpent head-crushing Messiah entered history during the time of the Old Covenant. But the author of Hebrews adds that in these last days, God has spoken unto us by His Son. In the Son's person and work, He is the great revelation of God And of his eternal purpose. He is the promised Messiah. The anointed one of God. Jesus Christ and the new covenant which he ushered in. Is the fulfillment of what the earlier covenants and prophets promised. 
for that reason. The author of the Hebrews sets forth passage after passage of the Old Testament scriptures to urge his readers not to return to Judaism and the empty shell of the Mosaic Covenant. Some were fleeing to Judaism instead of Christ. Fleeing to Judaism instead of the Savior because of the threat of persecution. The author's argument throughout the letter is that Christ, his person, his work, and his new covenant are better. Better than the old covenant. It is as though the author of Hebrews is sitting at a table with the Jewish believers that were tempted to flee. Can you get that picture? Have to be a mighty big table. But it's all right. It just takes one man standing for Christ. Now they're at the table. He is seated. They are seated. Maybe he has to stand because of the enormity of the crowd. But the point is, what he does throughout this letter is like sitting at that table with Jewish believers, those that were ready to go, those that were tempted to go, and as they laid out their arguments on the table for doing it, the author sets Christ before them from their own scriptures. To every prophet that the Jewish Christians could name, the author says, the son is better. To the angels, the son is better. To Moses, the son is better. To the sacrifices, the son is better. To the Levitical priesthood, the son is better. To the history or to the heroes of Israel's history, the Son is better, infinitely better, forever better. That's the way the, the letter unfolds. Bring your argument. He just goes to Christ. So then, to show the greatness, the betterness of the Son, the Holy Spirit has taken us into the breathtaking glory, the grandeur of God's throne room in the realm of heavenly splendor. He makes seven assertions about the Son. He is the heir and therefore the sovereign Lord of all things, the Father's agent in creation, <clears throat> the radiance of God's glory, the express image of God's person, and the sustainer of the universe. When he had by himself purged his people from their sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, when the eternal son became incarnate, he kept Moses' covenant perfectly, shed his precious blood upon the cross of Golgotha and died 
in agony, rose again the third day, ascended into glory, and was exalted by the citizens of heaven as he took up the throne at his father's right hand. No greater throne, no higher authority, no loftier kingship could be given him. No higher place in the universe. Having been appointed by his father in the covenant of redemption to save his people from their sins, the eternal son of God became Jesus, the God-man, and accomplished everything necessary to save his people from their sins and to preserve them until they enter the realms of glory to rule with Jesus forever. And now in verses 5 through 14, the author, guided by the Holy Spirit, links together a chain of Old Testament Scripture, seven passages to be exact, to show beyond doubt that Jesus is better than the mighty angels of heaven. The title of our servant of our sermon is God says his son is God. I'll say that again. God says his son is God. May the majesty on high pour out the Holy Spirit upon us to enlighten and encourage our hearts in Jesus Christ as we hear the living word, the living revelation that brings us into communion with the living God. This is not a lecture. These are holy living words given to us by our loving Heavenly Father. May we hear them and respond to them. Well, our first major point is God addresses the Son as God. This takes in both verses 8 and 9. Thus far, the author has applied Psalm 2-7 to the Son. We have learned that Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, possibly sung on the day that David was crowned king. And it is generally agreed that this was repeated by each succeeding Davidic king. But the extraordinary promises in that psalm were not fulfilled in the lifetime of Judah's fallible kings. The Jews then rightly understood Psalm 2 to be messianic. Likewise, 2 Samuel 7.14 speaks of David's son who would build God's house, God's temple. This was partially fulfilled in Solomon. But its ultimate fulfillment was in Jesus Christ building his house. His church. So it is crucial that we understand the relation between God 
and the kings of Judah. That's essential. Uh, it is vital that we truly have a good grip on the Davidic covenant. Because it is one of the covenantal keys that unlocks a great deal of scripture for us. Now, God has always been king of his creation. There was never a time that God was not king. Before creation, there was none but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In creation, God was king at creation. He has ruled, does rule, and will rule the universe from eternity to eternity. There's no break. There's no vacation of his kingship. That's important. But our sovereign appointed David and his descendants to be his representatives on earth. Another way to think of this is that God ruled Judah through David and his descendants. We have to understand the importance of that king. He was representing the living God. He was speaking and he was commanding God's people to walk according to the covenant, to the covenant laws of God. He spoke as God's mouthpiece. He represented God on his throne by sitting on his own throne. And so it was for each of the kings that were the descendants of David. But they all failed to keep the Mosaic covenant perfectly. Even David, the man after God's own heart, failed dreadfully at several moments. No one perfectly kept Moses and his law. So, Since they all failed, there could only be one solution to the answer of God's promises. And that's Jesus Christ, the son of David. For that reason, the author of Hebrews applies 2 Samuel 7.14 to David's son. And let all the angels of God... <clears throat> That's why he could call David his son. He wasn't son by nature, but son by representation and appointment of God. Now, that's important because it, it takes a simple word like S-O-N. And there are widely differing ways that it's used. If you go in reading and just plug in the same idea every time you see the word, you're going to come away with some strange ideas. There's no way uh, to avoid that. If we say Jesus is the son of God and if we say that angels are the sons of God, so what's the difference? 
Same words, but a different meaning. One is the Son of God by creation and appointment. The other is the Son of God by nature and appointment. So, <clears throat> the author then applied Psalm 97, 7 to the Son. Let all the angels of God worship Him. Few scriptures are so plain in proclaiming the Son of God. The one who purged us from our sins is God the Son Himself. The author then made a stark contrast between the angels and the Son, who maketh his angels, spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Though the angels are mighty, though the angels are powerful, though the angels are vital throughout the history of Israel, they are not only created beings, but God commands them to worship his son. I have said it before, but I remind you, the very fact that God commands created beings to worship the God-man can only be possible when that God-man is God. Otherwise, it would be idolatry. But when he then commands, him to, uh, commands them to worship him, <laughs> that's saying to everybody that reads it, my son is God. That word just isn't big enough for us sometimes. It doesn't move us. God. And that's why we started with several, uh, several um, sermons on that passage, God, 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 God. Well, the one who purged us, as I said, from our sins is God the Son himself. So then, God says to the Jewish believers and to us something even plainer. God says his son is God. We, we can see that implied in the verse before. By, by saying worship him. He is inferring that he is God. But now he's going to go past inference. And he's going to be straightforward. The Holy Spirit continues to reveal the vast superiority, the infinite distance between the Son and the angels. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, the first thing to consider is this. The UBS, United Bible Society, handbook on the letter to the Hebrews says that in the Hebrew language, the word throne is a symbol of kingly power. A throne 
is a symbol of kingly power. So whenever you see a a throne mentioned in Scripture, you should realize it's saying authority, kingly power. Someone sits on this throne. And we often see who does in the Scriptures. The second thing to consider is the pronoun he. He is God the Father. Listen again. But unto the Son, He, Seth, God the Father, Seth. As a matter of fact, the words plainly mean God said to His Son. If we were going to put them in our idioms today it's God said to his son that's exactly what they mean and the third thing to consider is that verses 8 and 9 are quoted from Psalm 45 which is a song of loves a wedding song for a king verse 1 says I speak of the things which I have made touching the king Therefore, God is saying, your throne, the symbol of your kingdom and of your kingly power, O God, will never come to an end. That's what he said of the son, addressing him as God. God says his son is God. There can be no higher authority. I mean, we can look high and low to try to give an apologetic, but there's nothing higher than the fact that God himself has said to his son, thou art God. And we should bow. And we should worship. And we should love him. And we should obey him. Because that's who he is. I I get frustrated with myself in my prayer time when I find myself cold and distant and with no sense of the greatness of my God. Well, let's think about this wedding song for just a few moments. that is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. God sitting on his throne. The son sitting on his throne. This is the fulfillment of of the promise that God made to David. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's in eternity. Forever. He is in eternity. Listen to the words here. God goes on to say, Thine house, David, and thy kingdom shall be established forever. It doesn't just say a long time. It means forever. There will never be an end to it. 
And he goes on to say, thy throne shall be established. In essence, he's saying the same thing. If his kingdom is going to last forever, it means his throne is going to last forever. The symbol of his personal reign over his kingdom. Well, the son of David is sitting on his throne. While Psalm 45 speaks of a king, it becomes obvious as in Psalm 2. It becomes obvious as in Psalm 2 that no fallible earthly king could have fulfilled or did fulfill what it says. Of whom can this be speaking but our Lord Jesus Christ? <clears throat> Clearly, while the king of Psalm 45 may be idealized, now we don't always use that term, it's a good one, to idealize something means to represent a perfect example. And there are times when there are certain things in the scriptures set before us, idealized. <clears throat> be ye holy, for I am holy. How holy do we have to be? There's an ideal, it's God. That immediately tells us we're going to have a struggle, right? But the ideal is still there. The model is still there. Someone criticized Arthur Pink once and saying, you set too high standards for God's people. And Pink wrote back and said, uh, this is not a, an exact quote, but he wrote back and he said, well, don't be upset that I have given you God's standards. They're not mine. He said, I cannot bring down the standards for you or me. And brethren, it is that way. The standards are enormous and the Lord doesn't ever bring the bar down. It's high. It's hard to reach. We fall on our faces out there running on the track sometimes. We have to be careful that we don't fall into ditches or fall off cliffs. But brethren, the standard is high because the standard is God. So idealizing something means, well, here's kind of the perfect example. This is the perfect model to by which to model yourself. So there are those who would say that addressing a person as God, as verse 6 does, is just an idealized king. It's not. It's Christ. He's not idealized. What God demanded in the law, Christ did it perfectly. The king in Psalm 45 certainly could be considered as idealized, but the issue is the author speaks 
to a king that he calls God. If you read it carefully, you can't escape that. You either have to say, uh, wait a minute. It started off by somebody saying, I'm writing. My heart's indicting a good matter and I'm writing about it. And I'm going to read it to the king. And so he talks about the king and how wonderful he is. The voice doesn't change if you keep following it. What, throughout the history of the church, there are those that have said, wait a minute, we got a problem here. He's calling a person God. Well, without spending a lot of time on the technical aspects of all that, <clears throat> one of the ways that earlier commentators dealt with that is they would say, well, at about this verse above that is where God breaks in and starts speaking. Right. Well, that, you have to make some um, pretty big guesses to do that. Fact is, <clears throat> someone is addressing that king and speaking to him as God. While it's certainly true, we have learned this already. The word for God there is Elohim. Elohim. We've learned that the Bible sometimes applies Elohim to angels, to human judges, and to kings. It is true. We cannot deny this same word used for the one true and living God and used for fallen human beings and angels that have not fallen. They are mighty ones. So, the Davidic kings were sons of God because they were to rule God's people according to God's law. But angels, judges, and kings are not sons in the way that Jesus is. That's one of the reasons we make that point repeatedly because there are contrasts throughout this letter and you have to keep in your mind, first of all, the God-man. The God-man. And realize that as the author works through this, sometimes he's emphasizing his humanity, sometimes he's emphasizing his deity. And again, you can get confused if you're not reading carefully and thinking. Uh, many of us would not think that some of these scriptures that are being quoted are any kind of a problem because we don't go back and look at them in their context. When we do, it begins to raise questions. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the way someone comes at the scriptures, the kind of hermeneutics that they use, make a huge difference. But I can just resolve it this way. I hope that this is useful in some way. Um, John Calvin said of this. John Calvin saw the problem. And, and he speaks of it very plainly. This is hundreds of years ago. If you're reading carefully, somebody called a king is being called God. Calvin says, although he is called God, he means the king, although he is called God because God has imprinted some mark of his glory in the person of kings, they're his representatives, and he helps them, 
Yet this title cannot well be applied to a mortal man. For we nowhere read in Scripture that man or angel has been distinguished by this title without some qualification. In other words, if we read the Scriptures carefully, we can begin to pick up when there are minute differences that make huge, huge differences in a, contr in a contrast. But we have to read carefully and we have to think, Lord, help me to understand these words in this context the way you mean them. It isn't just, well, some of you probably grew up like I did. And when I would sit in Sunday school, the teacher would sit down and he'd say, he'd read a verse or she would read a verse and they'd say, well, Billy, what do you think about this? And Billy would say what he thought about that. Hmm, yeah, that's good. And then it asked Susie, Susie, what do you think this means? And they would say, well, this is what I think it means. This is, this is what it means to me. And then we'd go around the room. And <clears throat> we rarely ever got him to say, well, I appreciated all those responses, but 98% of them are wrong. And what we need to do is understand what's actually being said to us here so we can live according to them. It was just kind of, Everybody expressing what they think. That's not helpful. That's not, that's not teaching. Now, it's fine to ask questions. Did you understand that? Did you, what do you think about this? But always come to the place of, here's what we think this passage really means. Or you're not teaching. The point is to bring God's words to God's people. So, that being said, Calvin understood this problem, but he realized it really can't fit any man because there's no qualification. Oh, God has no qualifications to it. We make qualifications for angels. We can look at the context and we can figure out, okay, when it calls them God, sons of God, we know that it's not talking about their nature. And we can do the same thing with human judges, but it's very difficult to do that with this passage. And that's, uh, it's a great challenge. And uh, modern commentators really struggle with it. And a lot of it has to do with the kind of hermeneutics they bring to the Bible. So <clears throat> the point that I'm driving at and that the, the writer to the Hebrews is driving at is that that verse plainly speaks of Christ. The king is Christ. That's what God is affirming here. Uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. <clears throat> And I will go back over a little bit of it just in the hopes of it being clear. The Davidic kings were sons of God because they were to rule God's people according to God's law. There was nothing about their nature that made them God's sons of God. Because one of the greatest proofs of Christ's deity is that God is called his father. The Jews understood that immediately. <clears throat> let's, let's talk about that for just a moment. 
Angels, judges, and kings are not sons in the way that Jesus is. They are sons by God's creating power and the appointments of their service to him, as we have said. But Jesus is truly God by eternal generation and truly man in one person. In one person. Now, Jesus very wisely used this truth when the Jews wanted to stone him. Stay with me on this for just a moment because it's important. It's right here in the scriptures. Jesus wisely used this truth about the difference about son of God, son of God. This means one thing. This means another. And Jesus took advantage of it. So here we go. The Jews wanted to stone him to death. He said, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man makest thyself God. How did he do that? By saying that he was the son of God. Now, Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods, if God called them gods, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Right? If you've ever read that and puzzled over it, it all has to do with who and what he is. It is who and what he is. Now, he's taking advantage of the fact that while they want to stone him, he understands they're ignorant of the Scriptures. So he simply takes this simple truth <laughs> terms can be used a different way and he says right here in the scriptures judges are called gods it's right here he said now are you going to stone me because i call myself the son of god i'm just a son of god these guys are gods he's not lying he's telling the truth he's not twisting anything he just knows that they don't understand it. He does this several times. He will ask them things regarding the scriptures and it quiets them. Here they want to stone him and he says, well, you're wanting to stone me because I say I'm the son of God. And yet the very scriptures that, by the way, Jews, you remember the scriptures came to you. It says he called them gods. So why are you going to stone me? Quite obviously, they didn't. Now, the Jews clearly understood that by calling himself the son of God, that Jesus was claiming deity. Thou being a man, makest thyself God. You make yourself God. But Jesus was using those scriptures very wisely to avoid being stoned so that he could accomplish his purpose of salvation. 
There was no subterfuge here. He just knew that they didn't understand how the words were different and how they worked. Now, his reply means something like this. If in the scriptures it is legitimate to speak of human judges as gods, how much more legitimate is it to speak of me as the son of God whom the father sanctified and sent? So they couldn't answer him. And the Lord stopped their murderous desires. They wanted him dead. And he went on. Okay. So with that in mind, we want to press on <clears throat> what we must take to heart is that the author of Hebrews understood Psalm 45 to be about Christ. And when I mean to take to heart, I mean, don't miss this point. He's taking a passage that's been debated for a very, very long time. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he takes it and says, right here, this is God calling his son God. And there, there's no qualification. It means he is deity. He is deity. By the guidance of the Spirit, he applies uh, verses 6 and 7 to the Son in contrast to the angels. Now, I know sometimes when we get into these kind of argumentation situations, we begin to lose uh, our track. I hope to get you back on. But sometimes you've got to sit down and wrestle with how Scripture interprets Scripture. You've got to deal with that. And you need to understand that words are fluid. Words are fluid. I've constantly said to those who come to the Q&A over the years that if you take a Greek lexicon, you can look up the word that's translated world. And depending on the lexicon you're looking at, there can be six to eight definitions. And sometimes the definitions are radically different. So how do you know what it means? You have to read it in its context. And then you have to compare it with other scripture to make sure you're not drawing the wrong conclusion. No one does this perfectly, but we can do it better. So I urge you, <clears throat> be careful about how you think um, in interpreting the word of God. It's an issue I've been struggling with for decades because I see that most of the differences between God's people lie in the way they interpret the scriptures. So I repeat what I said a minute ago. What you and I need to take to heart is that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is telling us God says of his son that he is God. Psalms 2, in fact, uh, Clearly, God the Holy Spirit intended the author of Hebrews to understand both Psalms 2 and Psalm 45 as applying to Jesus Christ, the God-man, <clears throat> as the God-man. The sacred text, therefore, is very clear. In the beauty and splendor of Christ's exaltation and the angelic worship in heaven, God the Father declares his Son to be God. 
That should fill us with awe, wonder, worship. May the Lord help us if it doesn't. It should encourage our hearts in perilous times to know that our Savior, our Lord, on the very authentication of the Father is God. Is God. The God-man. It should encourage our hearts when the world paints a picture that is dark, dangerous, and destructive. Jesus is God, the King of the universe. We have an anchor for the soul. We have Christ Jesus, the King. <clears throat> While... <clears throat> The word tells us that it is all, everything in this world, everything in this universe is under the wise rule of Jesus Christ, the Son. This is not simply an interesting theological statement. The word of God is plainly declaring of the glorified incarnate Son, behold your God. I mean, it's leaping off the page here. This is your God. Look at him. This is the object of your worship. Look at him. Well, behold your king. The descendant of David that would sit on David's throne with a forever kingdom is the son. He is the answer to so many of the issues that we see. God makes a promise. Israel falls apart and the promise doesn't come into effect. How can that be? Well, first of all, because there were conditions in those covenants. But God had a purpose, a greater purpose, because his son would be the true Israel. His son would do everything infinitely necessary to save us so <clears throat> we go on then to god says that the son's kingdom is righteous the god breathed text says a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity therefore god even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So, the descendant of David, he is the one, Jesus, Messiah, the King. The God says his kingdom is righteous, and this is what we want to gather before we close today. Notice what we read said something that is somewhat shocking in today's Christianity. Did you notice that? Thou, meaning Christ, the God-man, hast loved righteousness and hated. Hated iniquity. Wait, does Jesus hate? What did you just read? He hates. Jesus loves and Jesus hates. He has very clear objects 
in sight for both. He loves righteousness. He loves any and everything that is righteous. His father is righteous. The, the spirit is righteous. He himself loved righteousness and walked in righteousness. He was righteous for all eternity before he became the God-man. And as the God-man, he loved what was righteous. Always. Always. And he always hates iniquity. <clears throat> Now, we want to go back for a moment and look at the word scepter. The word scepter means a rod, a staff, and a scepter. A scepter is a ceremonial or ornamental rod or staff. It, too, was a sign. When you see a, th a throne, it means kingly power. And when you see a scepter, it's the same thing. Kingly authority, kingly power. It's a symbol. The world and this life are full of symbols. And when you grow up with certain symbols, you understand the language. But if you don't, it's entirely a different thing. You have to figure out what the symbol is all about. We've never seen, to my knowledge, any Democrat or Republican with a scepter. We have seen some with a gavel, but we've not seen one with a scepter because we don't have a king, or at least we're not supposed to, in this country. So, the scepter is a symbol of authority and of sovereignty. The book of Esther gives us a perfect example of this. Esther sent a message to Hatak to tell Mordecai, Whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that we may live. We could have a lot of fun in Christology, talking about that golden scepter, but we have to press on. The king had the authority to take or grant life, and the symbol of that was his golden scepter. You live, you don't live. That's power with a, with a stick covered with gold. Live, don't live. How thankful, brethren, how thankful we should be <laughs> that such a law does not keep any believer from coming to Christ. Brethren, when you have a heavy heart, a broken heart, when you have great joy, when you have a great need, whatever your issue, there's no golden scepter that has to be dropped down or pulled back. It's come. Why? Because he has given you the righteousness that he loves. He died upon Calvary's cross that his righteousness would become your righteousness, which is the entrance to heaven. That's it. It's entrance into eternity. He, he loved righteousness. The very fact that he loved righteousness and came to save the unrighteous is astounding. Is it not? I mean, just and ponder that for a while. Remember, he hates iniquity. And yet, in his love, 
He did something to move the hated iniquity out of the way. He gave himself. Glory to God. Oh, well. Nothing keeps his blood-bought children from that throne. There's no golden scepter to wait for. He calls, draw near, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Well, we've got just a few minutes. I don't know if I can squeeze that in here. In fact, I won't do that. I'll just do that next time. Here's what I want us to consider as we end. First of all, the scriptures are very hard. If we learn anything from this, there are portions of scripture that the greatest minds have attempted to tackle throughout the history of the church. There are aspects of it because of our sinfulness, because of our language barriers, because of all manner of of human failings and limitations that make it difficult for us to understand. Uh, Believers sometimes wrestle with passages for years before the Lord opens it up like a beautiful blossom. The key is always the Holy Spirit. Always. I mean, when you come to read the Word of God, pray before you begin. Say, Lord, by your Spirit, open my eyes. Show me wondrous things out of thy law. You can have all the tools and all the computer Bible programs. You can have all the, all the stuff to help you interpret and miss it. It's got to be the Spirit of God, always, beginning through it and at the end of it. Wrestling through these very difficult passages over the weeks has been challenging to me, and it's, it's reminded me of when I was in Matthew, the only other book that was, that was filled with as much uh, controversy um, was Matthew and the first three chapters of Revelation because everybody was arguing about these words, and people say, well, it's just it's simple. It's right there on the page. Just read it like the newspaper. And you're, uh, that's bad advice. It's not the newspaper. It's the living word of God. And he has spoken and we bow to it humbly and ask him to teach us. Teach me your words. Son of God, son of God, a fallen man, the eternal son who's never fallen and never will. Same words. How do I learn to distinguish them? You've got to read widely in the scriptures. You've got to see how it's being used. That takes patience, that takes prayer, that takes the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you wrestle over something for a long time before it finally gets bright. Secondly, what I would have you consider is once again how plainly, even though there's much controversy around those passages, how plainly God says that his son is God. 
God says. God says his son is God. Thou, O God. If there's any doubt after the plainness of that, we'd have to say, you're in a battle. You need the Holy Spirit. It's very plain. Brethren, read these things. Meditate on them. And meditate, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean just going into a silent prayer-type mode. The Hebrews often understood meditation as going to the scriptures and saying them out loud and praying on the basis of what they're reading because it drew their minds to what God has said and they were praying to God, very often coming to understanding and seeing, seeing these things with much greater depth than they had ever imagined. <clears throat> well, lastly, I just want to finish with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon commented on Psalm 46, uh, 45.6 that that controversial passage <clears throat> and the way it's used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what he said. To whom can this be spoken but our Lord? Who could be the king in that psalm? Who could you say, O God, to in the way that it is said there? And he says it was pretty obvious. To whom can this be spoken but our Lord? The psalmist cannot restrain his adoration. His enlightened eye sees in the royal husband of the church, God, God to be adored, God reigning, God reigning everlastingly. Blessed sight, blind are the eyes that cannot see God in Christ Jesus. We never appreciate the tender condescension of our king in becoming one flesh with his church and placing her at his right hand until we have fully rejoiced in his essential glory and deity. What does it mean for us to be married to him if we don't really understand the glory of his godhood? There's no one else like him. What a mercy for us that our Savior is God, for who but a God could execute the work of salvation? What a glad thing it is that he reigns on a throne which will never pass away, for we need both sovereign grace and eternal love to secure our happiness. Could Jesus cease to reign we should cease to be blessed. And were he not God, and therefore eternal, this must be the case. No Christ, no blessings. He's the channel. He is, as some of the Puritans said, the golden pipe through which all of God's mercies and blessings flow. No throne can endure forever, but that on which God himself sitteth, close quote.
God says, Jesus is God. We have the greatest stamp of approval and of authority in the mouth of God himself. May we ever love and grow in our knowledge of and fellowship with Christ Jesus, the Son. Amen. Father, we need thee. Oh, how we need thee. Lord, as we struggle through many of these uh, difficult passages, uh, especially over the time in which there have been uh, theological debates and arguments and, uh, Father, one group uh, splitting from another, we understand that this is all part of being in the church. But help us to be careful, to be wise, to be humble as we approach thy perfect word. And when we come to issues that are debated by thy people, help us ever first to consider thy glory, second, the conscience of the person with whom we debate. Help us, O oh Father. We have a way of making our conscience the law. Help us, my Father, to hear and to speak carefully, wisely, but as plainly as needed. Now, my Father, we have looked at thy word. We know that thou hast declared thy Son, eternal God. May this ever burn in our hearts, especially in the day in which we live. We need to know that in the things taking place all around us, the wickedness we see growing, the perversion that we see growing, the unbelievable advance of technology that is so often being used for evil. Help us, O oh God, in perilous times to cleave to God the Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brethren, if you would please stand with me. This is from Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. Now God himself, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you, I'm so thankful it says that, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. And toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end he may, be he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Amen. May the Lord help us to be so. Let's go in his name.